Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Visit www.decisionbreakers.com to learn more and see how they can help you win the war in store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and my guest today is Gaurav Jain, Assistant Professor of Marketing, Lolly School of Management at Rensselaer. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, people know it by RPI. So Gaurav's research spans the fields of numerical cognition and judgment, working memory capacity, and attention limitations. And using psychophysical methods, such as eye-tracking and facial expression analysis, Garov makes novel predictions about how various cognitive biases influence consumer choices. So last May, Garov submitted his doctoral thesis, which he called Hitchhiker's Guide to Numerical Space of Anchors, Landmarks, and Adjustment. And that caught my attention because, well, first of all, I love the title. And second, because it makes several major contributions to how we think about and can apply anchoring. So, Gaurav, welcome to Shoppernomics. Thanks, Phil. Thanks a lot. Pleasure is all mine. Terrific. Hey, would you mind building on my introduction and just tell us a little bit more about yourself? So, um, originally from India, I have done my engineering and then I went on and did my MBA before working in the corporate world. And uh, then I realized that life was too easy and good. So, I decided to inflict some pain on myself and did my PhD from University of Iowa. And I graduated from Iowa in 2017. So you will realize that I am a newly minted academician. So uh, that is a cue for you to be less harsh on me. And uh, that's it. Now I'm at uh, RPI, which is, uh, I mean, one of the oldest. And I think it's the oldest uh, engineering university in the US. So here I can use my the skills uh, I gathered during my PhD and MBA, as well as the skills I gathered during my engineering. Well, congratulations on your newly minted uh, academic status. Uh, does that also mean that you are also a newly minted uh, PhD? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, congratulations on both. Uh, both of Thank uh, you. Highly impressive. Um, all right. Well, terrific. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I, I read your dissertation that uh, earned your PhD, and, mm-hmm. and I read some of your other work as well. But um, mm-hmm. but I want to focus on your on your PhD thesis, and uh, and to start with, I'm curious why you chose to call it the Hitchhiker's Guide. Well, the thesis is about the features of numerical space that we have in our mind, and the second, it is about how we navigate that space. So in a way, it is a guide to the numerical space, and I use the Hitchhiker's Guide because uh, many people are aware of the show as well as the book. So the title definitely made my dad think about reading my dissertation. He has not done that so far, though. Well, it's it's certainly a good uh, a good lure. Um, I am familiar with the book. I happened to be reading it while I was riding my motorcycle across country, so it had, oh, a, wonderful. had a lot of personal relevance. Therefore, it, it caught my eye. Uh, very very clever of you to to insert mm-hmm. that. Uh, okay, so we're going to be talking a lot about anchoring and adjustment, obviously, which is the the core of your thesis. 
And, and just to make sure we're all on the same page, can you explain or define these concepts? Um, you know, so, so we're all starting from the same point. So if I ask you to, um, if I ask you a simple question, do you think that Gandhi died at the age of 60? And uh, then I ask your alter ego a similar question. And I ask uh, your alter ego whether he thinks that Gandhi died at the age of 90. And then I ask both of you to tell me the age at which Gandhi actually died. Chances are that your responses will be closer to 60 and your alter ego's responses will be closer to 90. Because your final responses in the absence of the knowledge of the correct answer is highly biased by the first piece of information that was given to you. So that first piece of information is known as anchor. So, so an anchor is a suggestion, not necessarily presented as a suggestion, but, but enters, mm. enters the mind, which becomes kind of the starting point for them mm. to provide, in this instance, a, uh, an estimate of Gandhi's age, right? Yeah. So an anchor is the first piece of information that people may use to make a numerical estimate or a numerical judgment. Okay. And so um, now we're going to get into adjustment um, more in depth, but but just kind of at a high level, how should we think about adjustment? As Tversky and Kahneman had initially proposed, individuals are exposed to the anchor and then they adjust in steps to, toward the final response. They take steps on the mental number line towards the final response until they feel comfortable about the final response. Mm. So adjustment is very similar. You can think about adjustment to be very similar uh, to steps that people take in the numerical space. That is, uh, if we go with the with the explanation proposed by Tversky and Kahneman and later championed by Apley and Gilovich. Okay, so so people will start with an anchor and there is a process yeah. by which they move from the anchor to their final answer, yeah. um, uh, you know, to a question or, or to an idea. Or, or to a decision, and, and we're going to talk about what that process is. Um, I used to work at Campbell Soup, and there was a uh, promotion that sold uh, condensed soup for 50 cents a can. But there were, there were four different situations. One was uh, a group of stores that sold it for 50 cents a can. There was a second group of stores that sold two cans for a dollar. There was a third group of store that sold six cans for $3, and a fourth group of stores that sold 12 cans for $6. So mm -hmm. in each of the four cases, the soup was 50 cents a can, but, mm -hmm. but the anchor of you know two for a dollar, six for $3, 12 for $6, mm -hmm. kind of anchoring their purchase quantity um, had a fascinating effect. Um, at, at, through each of those four scenarios, the average purchase quantity uh, increased. So, Absolutely. you know, it was at one level when we just sold it for 50 cents at, at the mm -hmm. 12 for $6, um, yep. you know, it, it was, I think, four times the average purchase quantity. Mm -hmm. um, so so that, that was my introduction to anchoring and, and its possible effects. Definitely, because the first piece of numerical information, which was one for 50 cents, so one was the first piece of information in the first case, uh, two being in the second case, six being in the third case, and 12 being in the fourth case was actually influencing people's purchase decision. So exactly. people were buying, yeah. So yeah. That, is, that is definitely indeed a very nice example of anchoring. Now you said that, um, you said anchors don't need to be plausible. Um, yeah. What do you mean by that? And can you give an example? 
Okay, let me go back to uh, Gandhi's example. And uh, this time, if I ask you, do you think that Gandhi died at the age of nine? What would be your response? I would say no. Do you think, and then if I ask your alter ego or somebody else in the room and I ask him, does he think that Gandhi died at the age of 200? <laughs> what do you think would the response be? It would be no. Then I ask the question, the age at which Gandhi actually died, Obviously, both of you will be giving me a very, very more plausible response, but still, your responses will be anchored towards 9 and 200, even when the anchor was completely implausible. So, anchors have been shown to be robust even when they are not plausible, and they are shown to be robust even when they are irrelevant. For the, uh, I mean, by that I mean, if I ask you, think about the last two digits of your phone number and then think about the age at which Gandhi actually died. Mm. Even in that case, your response to the age at which Gandhi actually died will be anchored towards the last two uh, digits of the phone number. I'm glad you gave that second example because the first example um, sounded like, you know, by asking the question first, you know, do you think he lived till age nine? And I say no, and then you say, okay, well, how old do you think he was when he died? I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer that under the influence of the fact that you asked me the first question. Uh, and, and, and the first question suggested he died at a young age. So I'm going to answer probably a young age. And, and then correspondingly, um, you know, by asking if he died at 200, to me, you, you're suggesting that he died at an old age. So, uh, yeah. so, this, so it, it's not a plausible number, but it is, um, it, it does kind of suggest just b by the fact that you asked the question that there's meaning to the number. Whereas in the second example of the social security number, uh, the last two digits, there's no meaning in that. I, I can't, I can't try to make sense of it and apply that to, to what answer I give you. So, so I'm glad you gave both of those examples. You mentioned, um, in, in your work, and this was a completely new idea to me, that anchoring extends beyond numbers to other domains, such as haptics, colors, mm -hmm. scents, tastes, sounds. Um, and, and, you know, it makes sense <laughs> now that you say it. But um, mm -hmm. at, at that time, when I, it first entered my mind, it just kind of opened up a whole new way of thinking about anchoring. Can you, can you give some examples of, of non-numeric anchoring? So yeah, so like uh, in my own dissertation, I created scales made up of sandpapers. So because I wanted to show anchoring in haptical in domains of haptics. So it was just like the mental number line, but it was not in the mind. It was there on the table. And then I gave people a question and they had to give me a response on that sandpaper scale. And I anchored them by putting a pointer on a highly granular uh, uh, sandpaper or a very, very less granular sandpaper. And when people gave their final responses, their responses were biased to the initial piece of anchor. The same happened in the domains of sounds as well. I called the people in my lab and I made them hear a particular sound. And the sound had no timber at all. So it was just a sinusoidal frequency. And uh, then I asked them a particular question whether they think, and they had to choose a sound on the sound scale as their final response. But I made them hear a particular sound 
uh, on the sound scale before they could answer, because before they could give their response. Right. And again, right. I saw that their final responses were heavily biased by this first sound that I made them hear. You know, you can imagine a, a restaurant anchoring people's menu choice uh, by uh, you know, somehow offering a scent um, as they walk into the restaurant, which, which mm-hmm. maybe may anchor their, uh, their preferences toward a, a certain taste. You're helping me make my choice by, by anchoring, um, anchoring me with certain sensory um, mm-hmm. stimuli. Yeah. Um, or, or an apparel retailer who, that sells you know, f- formal men's clothing that may have, uh, you know, advertisements on the outside window that are of similar colors to the, Absolutely. To the patterns that they have. Now, are people doing that? Now, they may be doing it and not realize what they're doing. They just know it may be working for them. But, but and any, any real examples come to mind? So there are examples that come to my mind, but uh, I am unaware of any documentation of the usage of perceptual anchoring. You know, I often wonder as I, you know, make my evaluations, you know, I, I go shopping and, and I look at, at what's presented to me in the forms of packaging and promotions and shelf layouts. And, and I'm often trying to, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what are the motivations behind these things. And at the same time, I'm also thinking, um, boy, they did something really smart here. I wonder if they know what they did. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and my guess is today, probably, you know, it may be kind of accidental or maybe they've, they've done it in the past and it worked. And so they just kind of keep doing it without really knowing, you know, why it works. Like, for example, I think putting candy at the checkout um, and, and mm-hmm. can, can, candy does very well there um, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, people are, are, are taxed cognitively. Uh, you know, yeah. the, act, the act of shopping is, is, is resource depleting. And, yeah. and by the time they get to the checkout, their self-control has diminished and now they, they'll, they'll allow themselves to, to have that candy bar. Whereas if they put the candy bar in the front of the store and people's cognitive resources are not as depleted, they, they may be able to exert willpower and, and just walk right by the candy. Yep, absolutely. So the literature that we are talking about over here is ego depletion. Yes. So yes, uh, our self-control goes low when, when we are cognitively depleted. And my guess is that supermarket operators don't think of it that way. <laughs> they just know yeah, it works. Um, yeah. And, and you know, who cares if, 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 because ultimately you just want to know what works. Okay. Yeah. So, so back to your paper, at one point you said, um, and I thought this was interesting. You said that people who have experience and knowledge in a given area are not immune to the effects of anchoring. And, and I think mm-hmm. the example you gave was uh, with car experts, um, mm-hmm who were biased by anchors when they were asked to estimate the value of a car. And, and I'm curious, yeah. you know, why, why doesn't expertise trump bias? So definitely uh, you will be less susceptible to anchor bias if you have an expertise in a field, but, uh, but still you are making a judgment in the absence of the correct answer. So when you are making a judgment, even when, you know, you can be, you can be highly, highly experienced, that judgment will be susceptible to the biases around and anchoring being one of those biases. So uh, see, when we talk about these biases, we are talking about the biases in judgment. That's why all these biases are known as judgment biases. 
And when do we make a judgment? We make a judgment when we don't have the correct answer in our hands. And in many scenarios, there is no correct answer at all. We are just estimating. Okay, so when we are making a judgment in the absence of correct responses, being an expert does not make me know the correct answer. I'm still figuring out the correct answer. Mm. And if I'm figuring out the correct answer, then I'm navigating the numerical space or any judgment space. And if I'm navigating that space, I will be uh, I will be influenced by the properties of that space. So so now let's get to what I what I'm going to call the good stuff, and and that's the numerical landmarks. And this this is really the the essence of your of your thesis. Uh, you mentioned that that these landmarks um, people use them when adjusting from the anchor. It's 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 part of the mechanism by which people use it. Uh, can can you explain what you mean by numerical landmarks and how they influence the way people generate their estimates when confronted with an anchor? So uh, when we when we have to think about numerical landmarks, we have to first think about physical landmarks. Now, what are physical landmarks? If let's say you go uh, from your home, or let me take my example. Uh, when I come from my home to the office, there are certain there's an old church on the road from where I know that I have to make a turn. Then there's a pharmacy from where I have to make another turn. So these are physical landmarks for me. I have the physical space around me and I have to make a mental map for that. But I cannot make a mental map in, in a lot of detail about everything in that environment. So I store some entities in greater detail and I name them as physical landmarks in, in the mental uh, spatial maps that I have in the brain. The same idea should be there and, and I, I showed that it is there for numerical spacing as well. So even in the numerical space, we have certain numbers that are stored in greater detail. Now, what are those certain numbers? For that, I again go to the physical space. What are the properties of physical landmarks that make them landmarks? Now, physical landmarks are different from the surroundings. They often, uh, you know, they often suggest a change in the environment, either the end of something or the beginning of something. Like for instance, in my case, uh, the pharmacy tells me that there's a change in the route. I have to make a turn. Now in the number space, we have uh, numerical space, we have these rounded numbers like 30, 40, 50, 60. These are the numbers that suggest a change from the previous decade and they're different from the previous decade. 100 is different from the previous 99 numbers, which are, uh, you know, one digit or two digit numbers. 100 is a three digit number. So that made me think that can these uh, round numbers have properties similar to physical landmarks. So what was I doing? Was I just simply renaming rounded numbers to uh, numerical landmarks and trying to, you know, sell something which was not there? Uh, well, no. What I show is that physical landmarks also have certain properties. Physical landmarks are stored in our mind in way greater detail. When you ask me about the pharmacy, I will be able to tell you the color of the pharmacy, probably the name of the pharmacy as well, but I won't be able to tell you, the, give you the details of any other building which was not a landmark. In the same way, if I put a round number on a particular package, it is more likely that I would be able to recall 
the brand name, the color name, or the features of the packaging, uh, then when I put a non-round numbers on the package. So, numer so numerical landmarks are stored in way greater detail in our mind. Second, numerical landmarks catch more attention, just like a physical landmark. So I have shown in my studies that if I just put a lot of numbers on the screen, chances are that your attention will be caught on the numerical landmarks before it is uh, being taken by other landmarks. The third most important thing, the third most important feature of physical landmarks is that physical landmarks act like decision nodes. Okay, so because we are primed for making decisions on landmarks. For instance, uh, suppose I make a turn on this pharmacy almost every day, and let me say that this pharmacy is XYZ pharmacy. So I am primed for making a turn at XYZ pharmacy. Suppose I, I uh, travel to Atlanta and I see another branch of this XYZ pharmacy and obviously I don't have to make a turn over there. <laughs> but I will be primed for making a decision on that because I've been used to making a decision on landmarks. Now, whether that decision is for making a turn or whether I'm thinking of buying or eating an ice cream for, for the last four miles, I am more likely to make a decision of buying or eating an ice cream when I see this physical landmark. The same is true for numerical landmark. When you see rounded numbers, you are more likely to make a decision and not to defer the decision. That decision may or may not uh, have to do with, with anything related to the number related to the landmark. So, okay, so uh, let's say um, at this intersection where the pharmacy is, on the other mm -hmm. side of the street, there is a supermarket. Yeah. And and when if you're giving somebody directions, you might say, uh, turn right at the pharmacy. Um, mm -hmm. But but for some reason, the supermarket may be more salient for me. And so mm -hmm. if I'm giving directions, I might say, turn right um, when you get to the supermarket. Um, yep. So I'm I'm just wondering if different people have different landmarks based on their Absolutely. life experiences. So, for example... Um, mm -hmm. The number 60, which is a nice round number, might be mm -hmm. a landmark for you because, you know, it's divisible by 10 and, and it is a nice round number. But 61 may be more salient for me because that's the year I was born. Um, it, so is, is there truth to that? And, and, and is that the right yeah. way to think about it? Definitely, definitely. So I'll take a minute to explain that. So, I mean, I completely, completely agree uh, with that. Uh, even if when we talk about physical landmarks, as you said, the ex our experiences make certain entities landmarks for us, which may not be the landmark for others. For instance, I work in the business school, uh, so the business school is a landmark for me. If somebody else works in the medical school in the same university or in the psychology department in the same university, the psychology department building will be a landmark for them. Same happens for numbers as well. 61 will be a landmark for you because that's the year of birth. In, and uh, probably 9 will be a landmark for me because I was born in September. So that is true. We will have a lot of landmarks, physical landmarks, as well as numerical landmarks based on our experience. Mm -hmm. But there are certain entities which will be, which are more, most very likely to be landmarks for everyone. So I think what you're saying is there are, there are universal, uh, there are landmarks that act uh, as universal landmarks. 
So yes, in other words, from, from a practical standpoint, marketers don't need to necessarily understand, all right, well, what are the landmarks for my shoppers? Um, mm-hmm. beca- because they can just use the universal landmarks. What might be some global numerical landmarks? You, you talked about um, round numbers. Um, yeah. Is it just round numbers or are there other examples of global landmarks? So, uh, I mean, in my in my dissertation, I have shown that round numbers are uh, the global landmarks. In a way, there are many, then obviously, there are certain numbers uh, which are based on the culture, uh, which become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger over time, and they become global landmarks as well. Uh, there are certain dates, which we remember very, very specifically, and we can create landmarks, but the idea is with 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 these rounded numbers we don't have to create landmarks these are the landmarks that people will have as uh, the mental number line evolves in the brains okay good all right terrific so in so we, we've got our our number line which is um, similar conceptually to a kind of a, a our, our spatial uh, the way we think about our world spatially we also think about yeah. numbers uh, spatially as well yeah. You also make a very interesting point that people are more likely to undershoot a magnitude when making a judgment versus overshooting mm-hmm. because the cost of overshooting is greater. Uh, the example you use is putting too much salt on your steak versus too little salt on your steak. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, what might be a practical implication of the undershooting effect for a marketer when using mm-hmm. anchors? Okay, so the first thing uh, before I answer that question, that uh, this is, I mean, we are still working on this hypothesis. Okay. Uh, this was a position that uh, we had made, I and my colleagues had made uh, while we were working on this paper because we were seeing in our data that people are undershooting, then overshooting the anchor. And there's no research as per our knowledge that has shown a directionality in anchoring. Uh, when we started thinking about it, there were many examples Examples which were related to the cost of undershooting and cost of overshooting. Mm-hmm. It seemed that you know the cost of undershooting are less than the cost of overshooting. For instance, you cannot take out the salt out of the steak, but you can add more salt to the steak. So when we serve food, you can serve the food, you can have less salt in that, but you can put salt on the table as well. You can have table salt. Right. Add. But this is just a very, very trivial example. But generally, we started looking into more examples as an evolutionary, evolutionarily, have we evolved in such a way that we are scared of overshooting, but less scared of undershooting. So this research is still under progress. We don't have uh, documented empirical data to prove that. Talking about the implications, uh, I will be in a position to uh, suggest practical implications of the same once I have the data to prove it. That's, I mean, that will be the the appropriate, uh, you know, research methodology of going about things. Understood. So um, let me throw an example out there and, and maybe you can tell me, um, you know, if that's a good or a bad example. And if so, if it's a good or bad way of thinking about it. But going back to that Campbell soup example where, you know, mm-hmm. every can was 50 cents, it was just presented with different anchors. And and with each, uh, as the anchor got higher, 
the average purchase quantity also got higher. But one thing that's important is that the average purchase quantity was never as high as the anchor, and especially as the anchor got higher. So one for 50 cents, sure, if people would buy one, maybe they'd buy more than one. Uh, two for a dollar, people would buy two for a dollar. Six for three dollars, people might buy four. Uh, Twelve mm -hmm. for six dollars, people might buy seven. Uh, is is that an example of, um, or a possible example of, of that undershooting effect? Uh, I mean, uh, okay. So you are you are making me say things which I didn't want to say. So, <laughs> there, so basically, what we have seen so far. Again, I won't be commenting a lot on that yeah. because I don't have my uh, because I don't have anything documented so far. Uh, what we are seeing right now in our research is that we can actually make people undershoot and make people overshoot. Oh. So initially, yes, the idea was when I wrote my dissertation, the position was that people may inherently be primed to undershoot, you know. But then we started getting data and we started seeing that people are actually undershooting. But then we started, this became our research question for the last six months. And what we are seeing is it depends on the context. There are contexts in which people may overshoot. For instance, if I call you uh, home for dinner, most definitely I will overshoot. I will not like that I get less food for my guests. So I will call for more food, even if it means that I have to throw the food after you leave. Mm -hmm. So in that case, so it is very, very contextual dependent. And we have seen subtle, we, we, have, we are uh, looking at subtle cues that people will be given in which, because of which they can undershoot or, or overshoot. Now, coming back to the uh, example that you gave, it may be a context in which people are undershooting, but it may have nothing to do with undershooting or overshooting bias over here. Right. It may, right. it may just be that people, if in the absence of any anchor, may go and buy less number of soup cans. But just because of the anchor, they are being pulled towards the soup, uh, towards the higher number of soup cans. But because people always adjust and this adjustment is insufficient, their final decision is less than the anchor. But if I change that, and if I if I uh, take a group of people who want to buy cans, who buy cans, uh, soup cans in bulk, and suppose they came to the came to the supermarket with the with the mind of buying twenty soup cans, and I give them these four different anchors, you know, one, two, six, and twelve. Right. In this case, they will be pulled towards the anchor again, but pulled from the opposite direction. Mm. So they may buy, you know, they may buy fifteen soup cans when they're exposed to 12. They may buy eight soup cans when they're exposed to six. They may buy four when they're exposed to the anchor two. They may buy two when they're exposed to the anchor one. Again, they are moving away from 20, the, the number they had in mind before being exposed to the anchor, and they're moving towards the anchor. But in this case, they are overshooting. And that's why I said that this may not have anything to do with undershooting or overshooting. It may just have... Uh, to do with the prior uh, prior decision that they had in their mind. And they're just being pulled towards the anchor from one direction or the other. I will be able to talk more about it once I collect more data and do more analysis in this particular project, which is uh, very different from, from, from what I did in my dissertation. Very interesting. And, and do please keep us um, in touch uh, of, of your progress there because that, that's a fascinating idea. Um, and it sounds like there's uh, some very interesting applications for that. 
Um, yeah. So it's, it's not it's not just that. Absolutely. They're... Like in one of the one of the uh, studies that we are doing, and we collected some data. It was in the restaurant setting. So if people are made to, I mean, if we if we use a particular uh, stimulus because of which people are overshooting, we are showing that people are ordering a lot of food and they're not able to eat it. Mm. And in the other way, we are showing that in the other in the other uh, uh, condition in which we we did something because of which people did not under uh, did not overshoot, they undershot. Uh, we saw that people are not ordering much food, which is actually good for them because if they're not ordering much food, they can order more food if they're feeling hungry. Right. In that case, we are having the implications for the restaurant as well because it is good for the restaurant not to make people overshoot in the long run. When people overshoot, they call for more food. They have a negative, a negative hedonic marking, which is being which is attributed to the restaurant. So the return rate lowers down. But again, like I said, well, let me stop myself from talking uh, more about the project, which is still uh, undergoing. I hope you realize just how cool your job is. <laughs> to do work like that, you must love getting out of bed in the morning to to go to go to work. That that really sounds stimulating. You know, given who's listening, um, people who are interested in understanding these new learnings and what drives behaviors and, and mechanics of decision making. Now that we know what we know uh, and what you've learned about um, anchoring and adjusting and um, and the mechanisms behind it, can we give more or better um, guidance on how to apply this understanding in the real world? So, uh, to be very frank, uh, I often play the devil's advocate. So, uh, I always think about how can we make people aware so that they are not biased uh, by marketing tricks or they are biased in such a way that they make better decisions for themselves. So, in that way, in one of my papers in which I don't work on anchoring, I work on framing, I show that how can we make people how can we encourage people to stop uh, smoking? In that particular uh, paper, I show that use of specific numbers rather than rounded numbers in frames decreases the attitude towards the target. Suppose I tell you that you know a particular beef is 80% lean. If it is 80% lean, you will you will actually like it. But suppose I tell you it is 84% lean. It is even leaner you should like it more but i've shown in a series of five studies that and i've done the reasons for that as well that people have less attitude towards the beef and they will think that the beef is less healthy when they look at the specific number even when the specific number is objectively signifying that the beef is more healthier is healthier uh, than the other beef so i use the same concept for smoking advertisements so when we see, say that, I read a particular message somewhere in a magazine that about 8% of kids in a particular country uh, die due to passive smoking. And there was a source which was listed there. I went and looked at the source. The actual number was 7.96. It would have been better if the, if the people, uh, if the writers of the article in the magazine had used the actual number 7.96, because that would have decreased the attitudes towards smoking. So that's where I try to take my research 
towards uh, how can I use my research to make people uh, make better decisions for themselves and for the world. So round numbers have uh, generate a positive affect and and specific numbers generate a negative affect. Is is that over, yeah. oversimplified or is that the right? Uh, that is that is a right oversimplification, I should say. <laughs> it, it is a correct oversimplification. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's a correct oversimplification. Okay. Uh, how how can I um, make it more correct? What if I say that the success rate uh, of a technology is nineteen point seven two percent? It is less than twenty percent, isn't it? So people should like the technology less. It makes sense. Right. But what if I tell you that the technology is 21.46% success? It is more than 20. People should like it more. Right. But even in this case, I have shown that people will have lower evaluation than the technology which is 20% successful. Now you ask me why to make it you know, uh, more correct and less uh, simple. Yes. The reason is when we when we look at these specific numbers, we have a need for cognition. We have to make sense of it. Whenever we see something out of ordinary, we have to make sense of it. We are evolved in that way. Or if we don't stop to make sense of something that is not ordinary, we can get killed. Or we could get killed when we were evolving. So we are evolved in such a way that whenever we see something out of ordinary, we have to stop and make sense of it. To make sense of a specific number, we, we think about the closest reference number. If I see something that is 21.46% successful, the closest reference number is 100% success rate. And in comparison to 100% success rate, 21.46 seems to be very low. Mm -hmm. Because of which I have my evaluations get lower. So we've got numerical landmarks which which disproportionately grab our attention. They have disproportionate uh, memory um, effects, um, mm -hmm. and they and they can take our attention away from other attributes in our communication message. Absolutely, and and they can they can have a positive or a negative affect uh, result. Absolutely. In other words, we really need to be deliberate on how we use rounded versus specific numbers and, and choose our numerical landmarks because we can do a disservice to ourselves and our products um, mm -hmm. by, you know, pricing or describing an attribute in, in the form of a non-landmark or, or a specific number versus uh, leveraging a landmark or a non-specific number. Absolutely. That, that is being put in a wonderful way. I will just add one more nuance to it. So the concept of landmarks will work in system one. The second example that I gave you make people move from system one to system two. They make people elaborate more. Right. And that's why specific number framing, which is a different concept, works in those uh, in that direction. But the underlying statement that you made cannot be more appropriate that people, that marketeers, and even uh, and, and not only marketeers, even the policymakers have to be very careful while they are putting the numbers in their marketing communications. Sometimes less is better than putting a, a bigger number. 
a bigger number can result in lower evaluations so you you should you know curb your curb your initial in, uh, instincts and put a lower but probably a rounded number to avoid getting lower evaluations yeah what a wonderful wonderful learning that is that is really critically important and that's a nice way to finish up on the topic of, of landmarks and specific and, and non-specific numbers, because uh, I, I want to talk uh, just briefly um, and switch gears about um, about numerical landmarks uh, included in response scales. So many of our listeners uh, do research, uh, consumer or shopper yep. research, and response scales are something that we all use in our surveys. Yeah. And you're saying that that we can influence the way people respond to our survey survey questions mm-hmm. yeah. um, again unknowingly i'm i'm sure um, by by incorporating numerical landmarks can you elaborate yeah, yeah so uh, i have like um, there were a couple of studies i did with the response scales in my dissertation and the response scales can have a lot of markers on them you can have a scale which have which can have the markers such as 10 20 30 40 50 60 all the way till 200 or 300 or 400 mm-hmm. if you're asking people uh, about a particular uh, cushion let's let's work with an example that will be easier so suppose i ask you your willingness to pay for a particular uh, electronic scanner and i give you a scale on which you have to mark your willingness to pay and that scale may start from 0 all the way till 500 and has markers in the steps of 50. So the steps, so the markers are 50, 100, 150, 200, so on. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you can stop anywhere. You can stop at 50, 152, 53, 54, anywhere. But the markers are at 50, 100, 150, 200, and so on. Okay. So this scale, uh, as I've shown in my work, is laden with numerical landmarks because 50, 100, 150, 200, 300, all these numbers are landmarks, okay? They are global landmarks. Right. So what happens is, when you are responding on this particular scale and when you are thinking about the response, on each of these landmarks, you are actually thinking about making a decision, Hmm. whether to stop and give that response, uh, give that number as a final response or not stop and keep going on in the direction that you're moving. Now, if I don't put these landmarks on the scale, I make it better? Probably no, probably yes, because we have a mental number line in our mind. Even if I put the markers, if I give you a scale without any markers, I will be using the mental number line because I have, all of us have a mental number line as we are evolving. So how, what can we do about it? We can control the landmarks that are salient by giving the landmarks on the scale. Suppose I want to give you more landmarks. I increase the granularity of, sorry, I will take that back. Suppose I want to put more landmarks, I will increase the number of markers on the scale. I can mark 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, all the way to 500. Okay. Again, this range will be same from zero to 500. The granularity, please note, the granularity is the same as well. Even now you can, you can give a response such as 51 or 52 or 53, just like the last case. The granularity is still the same, but the number of markers has increased. Suddenly, more landmarks have become salient in my mind. Mm-hmm. More decision nodes are there because landmarks act like decision nodes. 
I'm more likely to make a decision at more numbers. So I'm more likely to stop more with more or less landmarks and with anchors as well on either side. And I showed that people people's final response is biased towards the is more biased towards the anchor in the case when they have more landmarks. So simple one uh, one line answer. Anchors are much more robust in the presence of more landmarks. Mm. So so the lesson here for practitioners in, in avoiding this is to this is a question is to reduce the number of landmarks and avoid landmarks as possible. So if, if you want a true response, if you don't want to bias or responders. Yes. Uh, so it is better to do not use any markers, any numerical markers. Mm, okay. In that way. But again, uh, the moment I say that, uh, there will be a second side of me which will come and again arguing with me and saying that is not correct because if you don't put any markers and people will bring their own markers and there will be individual right. differences. Right. At least by putting markers on the scale, you are making sure that everybody is working with the same landmarks. Right. So again, there's no correct answer to that. There will be, uh, you know, uh, a demerit of having markers and demerit of not having markers as well. So I'm, I'm connecting some dots here and I'm wondering, you talked before about people shifting from system one to sh system two thinking. Yeah. Um, and, you know, rounded numbers generates more system one thinking, specific numbers generates more system two thinking. Could you use um, specific numbers in your scale to invoke that system two thinking to get people to be more highly engaged in in your survey? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful question. And uh, if you did not read the framing paper that I had sent you, then it is an amazingly awesome question because that's exactly what we are showing there that uh, if we introduce specific numbers in any context where they are not expected, and it is very intuitive, if you see unexpected things, you pay attention. Once you pay attention, you elaborate. Once you elaborate, you engage in system two thinking. Mm. So you are right. If you have specific numbers on the scale where specific numbers are not expected, you uh, your your responders will be engaging in system two thinking and will be constructing an answer. Terrific. And on the topic of of what you learned that can be helpful for researchers in, in, in another body of work. You talked about reverse worded items in yeah. surveys and how they can bias response as well. Um, can you explain what reverse worded items are and, and the bias that they create? Okay, so this is uh, this is the uh, project that uh, has nothing to do with numbers as such, but a lot to do with surveys and uh, scales. So suppose I give you a uh, uh, a question about a particular spokesperson. Do you think that person, that the spokesperson is honest? And I give you a scale from, you know, highly dishonest to highly honest. Mm -hmm. Okay. You will be giving me a response on that scale. This is a positively worded item. Suppose I give you a question. Do you think that the person is dishonest? Mm. This becomes a reversed worded item because it is a negatively worded item okay so in that case if you are giving a plus five 
on a seven point scale in the first case you should be giving a plus you should be giving a two on a seven point scale in the second case right so what we show that this is not always true people give different kind of responses which don't add up at the end for positively worded items and reversed worded items now which are better should we always use positive worded items now lots of research in the past many many decades have shown that that is a bad idea because if all items are positively worded items because people become less attentive and they start answering questions even without reading the questions completely or they go on an autopilot mode unknowingly and they are not processing the question they are reading the questions but they are not processing the question you should all take some reverse worded items with positively worded items but when that happens what are more diagnostic ideally they should give the same results but they don't give the same results so which are more diagnostic are positively worded items more diagnostic or are reverse worded items more diagnostic so in this particular paper that i do with uh, uh, dr john murray at uh, university of iowa uh he had some lots of uh, data and we collected some fresh data as well where we showed that they are the reverse responses to the reversed worded items are more diagnostic so mm. when i ask you your responses on two questions do you think that the person is honest and do you think that the person is dishonest i should give more weight in my analysis to your responses to the second question mm. so in this we are showing that reverse worded items are much more diagnostic than than uh forward worded items so i'm curious i've i've always felt that whether it's positively or negatively framed uh in 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 the question in the word choice within the question um both of those will result in some form of bias and and i've always tried to uh ask things in as neutral way as possible uh mm-hmm. which which is often challenging uh to find yeah. ways to do that but yeah. but is that would a neutrally presented question give you the uh, and i'm doing air quotes as i say this uh give you the most accurate response if you can come up with a neutral measure then probably yes i don't have any data to show that and i'm just thinking on my feet right now mm-hmm. that it sounds correct your conjecture sounds very correct the problem is it is hard to uh test this conjecture because like you mentioned it is extremely difficult if not impossible sure. to come up sure. with neutral uh questions you can introduce a valence in unknowing ways even in the word uh, uh if not in the wording of the question you can introduce it in the scale right so so that makes it very difficult but if we can make it possible then your conjecture i mean i would second that i will put my money on that okay well thank well thank you for that perspective and and i thought this was um a really interesting topic all, all of your work is quite fascinating uh and by the way apologies for keeping you on so long i know we were scheduled for a shorter time but um but th- this has been incredibly fascinating um this conversation and just reading your work uh, the the topics you choose to to work on are are just first of all inherently fascinating uh and second of all have have really really um um you know st- strong and relevant implications uh you know for 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 the us practitioners out there i'm just curious you know having done the the work that you've done 
Uh, has it changed the way that you approach your own shopping when you know when you when you go to a grocery store or, or buy a car, for example? Oh yeah. Uh, so studying marketing in general has changed the way I think about shopping. So earlier I used to be, uh, you know, I I used to discourage uh, my wife from buying expensive handbags <laughs> because that would cost money. But now when I'm uh, when I'm studying marketing, uh, I have, you know, I've become more philosophical about things and I know that if a product and spending money can give happiness, can give utility, mm-hmm. uh, emotional utility, then it is worth buying. So I stopped topping her and she's happy. And um, if we if we talk about my own work and not marketing in general, in, in general, then yes, I'm more, I'm less immune to biases. I, uh, sorry, I should say I'm more immune to biases. I still fall uh, for the biases for sure. Mm-hmm. Studying biases does not make us completely immune uh, to biases. But yes, one thing I've noticed is that odd pricing or something priced uh, $1.99 or $1.95 or $195 or $1,995 these kind of pricing do not have much effect on me. Mm-hmm. I have automatically started processing them as $2,000. So I've seen these pricing work a lot. Uh, there are a lot of research being done. But in my own way, and I may be completely wrong, if a third person looks at me and he can say that, you know, I'm still biased by the odd pricing. But in my own way, I have started automatically processing odd pricing into even pricing. I love your handbag example. Um, I've been married for 26 years, and over mm-hmm. that time, I've learned that I will never get in trouble when spending too much money on jewelry for my wife. Yeah. That is, that is, well, you can. Well, you may, if you look at the anchoring uh, research, you may anchor her for the next time. Oh, tell me more. Yeah. So if you if you buy something. <laughs> For a wife, she will be anchored on that particular price, and you have to keep increasing to give the same sort of utility. Oh, that's well. That was exactly the mistake that I make, and probably a lot of us do. You know, when you first yeah. get married, you buy expensive things, and it's it's hard to work down from there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Gaurav, thank you very, very much for your time, for your thinking, for your perspective, um, and and for being willing to step outside of of kind of the pure research and just give some, um, you know, speculate on some thoughts. I really enjoyed speaking with you and and getting the inside scoop on your work. Uh, is there anything else that um, that needs to be added before we close? Anything we didn't talk about that we should? Well, I think I'm good. Uh, there's, I mean, um, there are a lot of lot of other projects that I work on, and uh, it will be it will be a torture to my listeners, uh, to your listeners, if we start talking about all the projects in detail. <laughs> so yes, uh, uh, numbers and numerical processing is a very very fascinating field. We grow up with numbers. We have numbers all around us. So if your listeners have any ideas. Uh, that they want to share, uh, I will. I will be very, very happy to learn from those ideas. That's great, and um, you know, and and the listeners love to have the opportunity to uh, to make those connections. How can people reach you, uh, Garv? What's the what's the best way? Uh, I think uh, the best way to reach me is email me. I am I am uh, very very quick 
and let me put it i am very excited to argue and to talk about different ideas uh, i can be reached at uh, g a u r a j at rpi.edu terrific so, yeah yeah no thank you for for offering that that invitation and i hope people take you up on it uh, well let's definitely stay in touch um, i i do want to continue following your work uh, i'm really interested in where you end up on this undershooting effect and, uh, and how we can leverage that. And, uh, and best of luck in your, uh, with your new job. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks yeah. A lot. Great talking to you, Kara. Same here. Same here. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics. Shoppernomics.